0: Welcome to Seekers and Scholars, a podcast from the Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston. I'm Jonathan Eder, your host. The library holds extensive collections on Mary Baker Eddy as the discoverer and founder of Christian science, as leader of her church, and as a critical thinker and figure in religion and other fields. But what of Eddy beyond her extraordinary resume and the far-reaching impact of her writings and the institutions she founded and led? What of her personal side, the relationships that were part of the thread of her life? Our collections shine light on those important aspects of her experience as well. Eddie was married three times. In this episode, we will look at the marriages of Mary Baker Eddy, what they meant for her, and the ways in which they reflected the meaning of marriage as it evolved in the broader context of 19th century American culture. To get into this journey of the heart... I'm so pleased to welcome our two guests, Mike Davis and Stephanie Kuntz. Mike is Senior Research Archivist at the Mary Eddy Library. Mike has decades of experience working in the archives we hold here. Currently, his primary work is with the Mary Baker Eddy Papers Project, annotating Eddy's correspondence and providing context for it in writing historical essays. So welcome, Mike. Well, thank you, Jonathan. It's good to be here today. It's great to have you and your expertise. Also, I'm so pleased to welcome Stephanie Kuntz to Seekers and Scholars. Stephanie is a leading authority on the history of marriage. She's the author of numerous books and articles on gender and the family. Among her book titles are Marriage, a History, How Love Conquered Marriage, published by Penguin in 2006, and The Way We Never Were, The Nostalgia Trap a new edition of which was published by Basic Books in 2016. Forthcoming for Stephanie is a new work titled For Better and Worse, The Problematic Past and Uncertain Future of Marriage, to be published by Viking Press at Harper & Row. Stephanie is Director of Research and Public Education at the Council on Contemporary Families and is Emeritus Faculty of History and Family Studies at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. And Stephanie, I believe you have appeared on Oprah. So it seems to me like it's a natural step to have you on Seekers and Scholars.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm willing to make that step. Thanks for inviting <laughs> <Okay>. me. <laughs> well, yeah.
0: well, with Oprah in your background, you, you've done it all. So <laughs> I expect you'll, you'll feel very relaxed in our humble company. So, Mike, before we get started in looking at the history of Mary Baker Eddie's marriages, I'm curious what do you see as the connection between the more personal details of Eddie's life? and her calling as the discoverer and founder of Christian Science and inner leadership of the Christian Science Church.
2: Well, I think it shows that she was completely involved with human life from beginning to end and all of its uh, various aspects, its triumphs and problems and so forth. I think that a lot of her teachings about addressing the human condition probably arose from a lot of the various experiences she'd had, including her experiences with marriage.
0: Well, absolutely, Mike. And and of course, she devotes a chapter to the subject of marriage in her main work on Christian science, science and health, with Key to the Scriptures. That chapter was there from the very beginning of that book's publication, History, right from 1875 with the first edition. Great, Mike. So let's begin. Who were the husbands of Mary Baker Eddy? Well, the first
2: one was a man named George Washington Glover, and he was born in 1811 and died in 1844, and he met Mary Baker Eddy at the wedding of his sister, Eliza Glover, to Mary Baker Eddy's sibling, Samuel Baker. This all took place in the New Hampshire area where Mary Baker Eddy had been born and grown up. Mary Baker Eddy was about 11 years old at the time of this wedding. And on that occasion, George Glover said to Mary Baker Eddy that when she grew up, he would come back and marry her. (laughs) And that's exactly what happened. They were married on December 10th, 1843, but they'd been engaged for two years prior to that. At that time, Glover was a building contractor in the Carolinas, and there were some problems with the engagement, however, as Mary Baker Eddy's father, Mark Baker, objected to the marriage and actually intercepted some of the letters between the two. But eventually that problem was surmounted and the marriage took place. On Christmas Day in 1843, Mary Baker Eddy and her husband sailed to South Carolina, where they were briefly in Charleston. They very soon, however, moved to Wilmington, North Carolina, Mary Baker Eddy had very quickly after the marriage become pregnant, and she settled nicely then into the social scene there in Wilmington and even contributed articles to local publications. The couple attended the Episcopal Church, and Glover was an active Freemason. Another move was planned, however, as Glover was the building contractor for a cathedral to be constructed in Haiti, and the couple was going to move there. But unfortunately, Glover came down with yellow fever after just six months of marriage and died. His brother Masons took care of Mary Baker Eddy and helped her return to the Baker family home in New Hampshire.
0: Wow, Mike, you've shared so much rich detail about Mary Baker Eddy's experience as a young woman around courtship, around engagement, as a young bride. Stephanie, when you hear this story about her experience how does it align with what is going on in the culture more broadly around expectations, around ideals for marriage?
1: Of course, there are many alternative subcultures in American history. But we're talking about essentially uh, middle-class farming or professional small businesses uh, of the New England area who were among the most advanced in terms of adjusting both to the political changes after the American Revolution, the new development of democracy, uh, a limited democracy, (laughs) uh, and the new ideas about individual responsibility for your fate instead of depending on what the hierarchies told you to do, and also coming in at a time when gender roles were changing and the role of marriage was changing. It's interesting, for example, that the father did not want them to marry. Now, for thousands of years in England and also in colonial America, he could have scotched that marriage completely. A marriage was an arrangement in which people had to manage an estate, a business, a farm, a great estate, whatever class you were in, marriage was the way you conducted your economic life. And so choosing someone for romance and physical attraction or even emotional connection was secondary. That was supposed to grow up after marriage. At the best, your parents should help you choose somebody you might be able to learn to love. So the advent of the love match had been spreading since the late 18th century, but it was still a shock many Americans. There are advertisements from the uh, 1780s and 90s of men who say, my wife has left me for no cause but want of love, (laughs) and therefore (laughs) I'm not responsible for her debts. So they're getting married at at a really new time when the love match is just becoming popular and acceptable. But it poses a lot of troubles. Social conservatives of the time were very concerned. If you start marrying for love, How will we make sure that you marry the right person? And the result was a really new idea of courtship, an ideal of soulmate courtship. Mm. This was also important because you were getting new ideas about males and females here. Mm -hmm. Most people don't get this, but the old traditional marriage— was not a male breadwinner marriage. And it was not something where the man was supposed to do all the work and the woman was supposed to process it and take care of the comforts of life. It used to be that men and women were yoke mates, that's what they were called. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, as you were beginning to get a commercial society developing, you were getting more men involved, having the right to be in political and economic ventures of their own this new male breadwinner ideal evolved. And the way that it became justified, the way people began to understand it themselves, was that marriage was no longer a union of yokemates. It was a union of two people who specialized in absolutely opposite things. The men took care of the economy, the women took care of the home, the men took care of the practical matters, the women took care of morality. And so this was this new idea, and the idea of soulmate love was the one thing that you could count on to bring two people who have opposite roles in life was that they can connect at the level of their soul and character. And the result was a really new idea of courtship, an ideal of soulmate courtship, that you married somebody on the purity of their soul.
0: Stephanie, this is extraordinary to hear about the emphasis on soul for the 19th century American mind around marriage, because Eddie very much emphasizes it as well in her chapter on marriage. For example, she writes, Soul has infinite resources with which to bless mankind, and happiness would be more readily attained and would be more secure in our keeping if sought in soul.
1: And unlike medieval ideas of soulmate romance. And there were some of those, even though you weren't supposed to marry a soulmate, you often fell in love with one. The old idea was you fell in love at first sight. But the 19th century ideal was totally different. It was an exploration of the other person's soul and character to make sure that you could develop a communion of soul and
0: values Well, that's fascinating, Stephanie. And Mike, from what she's saying, it sounds like Mary Baker Eddy and George Washington Glover kind of represented that change. Would you describe it as a love match?
2: Yes. Mary Baker Eddy even once wrote that she married early the one she loved. So obviously they had fallen in love. Sad that it only lasted for six months.
0: Yeah. Well, that leads me to my next question. I mean, she's a widow in her early 20s now. To be a widow at that age, was that something that was common in communities?
1: Well, it was more common to be a widower because so many women died in childbirth, <laughs> which is why stepfamilies were much more common then than even they are today. But as a widow, she faced possibly a different situation than a widow might have faced back in the 1700s when most businesses and farms were in fact run by men and women together. You married your workmate, (laughs) not your soulmate. Mm -hmm. And many widows took over their husband's trade. They were so well-trained in it. But of course, she wouldn't have had the opportunity to be uh, engaged in his trade and probably would have been discouraged from doing so. So that left her in a very precarious
0: position. Right. So Mike, how did she respond to this precarious position in which she finds herself?
2: This was a period of several years before she remarried, and uh, some of the themes of that period are that she was once again now dependent on her family there in New Mm -hmm. Hampshire, and uh, that was difficult for her. And her son, George Washington Glover II, uh, was born. He was a boisterous, unruly child who was disliked by Mary Baker Eddy's father and others in the family. And over this period of time, Mary Baker Eddy was becoming increasingly ill and found it difficult to care for the child. The other family members didn't want to care for young George. And so there was a woman connected with the family named Mahala Cheney. She was a good-hearted, uneducated young woman who really took to George and uh, took care of him a lot. The family eventually decided that she and her husband, Russell Cheney should take George and raise him. And so that's what happened. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy lost control of her son. Also during this period, Abigail Baker, Mary Baker Eddy's mother, died. And within a year, Mark Baker, her father, had remarried. At that time, Mary Baker Eddy was still grieving for her mother, and she was not happy that her father's marriage had taken place so quickly after her mother's death and also how he'd been treating her son, George. And I'd like to read a letter about the stepmother coming into the family and how George was being treated. She writes, Father is to be married to Mrs. Duncan of Candia, New Hampshire, next Thursday week. Her best carpets and goods have arrived. Last year, a little later than this, I went into that cold, damp house with father, helped cleanse it and set it in order and lived alone with a little girl and him all winter. In the spring, he told me that if George was not sent away, he would send him to the poorhouse after abusing him as he did through the winter. Now he comes to me to help arrange the things of his bride, but I will see them in the bottomless pit before doing it. Everything of our departed mother has to give place to them, and father is as happy as a schoolboy.
0: Oh my gosh. Um, So real tension between father and daughter at this juncture in the Baker family. So Stephanie, when you hear this story, what does it reveal about what is going on in the culture around the evolution of family and disruptions to family in 19th century America?
1: If you go back to the 17th century, the 18th century, men were the ones who were the tutors to their children, who instilled obedience by force, who were the moral center. Uh, they were the ones who taught the values and the religion to the kids. In the 19th century, this changes, and women begin to be the ones who are responsible for the moral education of of their children, and a new form of discipline develops, uh, what they called the silken cord of mother love, which was the fact that you, you did it through love rather than through discipline. One of the things we find in many 19th century marriages is that women were eager to get engaged, but actually often tried to postpone the wedding as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Because for women in households where they had supportive parents, the parents were actually quite indulgent with them in this kind of transitional period. They had freedoms that they would legally lose as soon as they married. So we have a lot of records of these intense courtships. But once the date is set, Once they actually decided to marry, the women start postponing the wedding because they know that they're going to lose the freedom that they had and the indulgence they had at home. It is so important to understand that women may have been idealized in this new ideology of separate spheres and veneration of womanhood, but they had no legal rights at all.
0: So, Mike, what's in store for Mary Bickrady going forward around marriage?
2: Well, she does get married again, but before that happened, she got engaged to another man named John Bartlett, but that engagement didn't last long. Um, He decided to go to California to be part of the gold rush, and she was going to follow him out there when he made good, but uh, he died out there, so that was the end of that. Her second husband then was Daniel Patterson. He was born in 1818 and died in 1896. He was an itinerant dentist, and also he was interested in homeopathy, which was an alternative health system that was popular at that time. Patterson was also a nephew of Mary Bakeretti's stepmother, but they didn't meet because of her stepmother. Mary Bakeretti needed dental care, and Patterson was available as a dentist. So they were attracted to each other, and romantic feelings grew between them. One roadblock to the marriage, however, was religious. At the time, Mary Baker Eddy and her father, Mark Baker, were Congregationalists, and Daniel Patterson was a Baptist. Apparently, Mark Baker and daughter believed this difference in denominations was a major impediment to the marriage taking place. However, this was eventually overcome, and the marriage took place on June 21, 1853. Well, in addition to the love that Daniel Patterson and Mary Baker Eddy felt for each other, another motivation on her part was the hope that she could be reunited with her son. And apparently, Daniel Patterson went along with that because in March of 1855, they moved to North Groton, New Hampshire, where the Cheneys had moved with George. Well, it turned out that Patterson didn't like the boy— and felt that having him around could exacerbate Mary Baker Eddy's invalidism, which was quite pronounced at that time. So it didn't really work out for uh, her to get her son back. And then in April of 1856, the Cheneys moved to Minnesota and took George with them. Mary Baker Eddy didn't hear from him again until 1861 and didn't see him again until 1879. And over time, with Patterson, there was evidence that he became prone to having extramarital affairs. He was also commissioned by the governor of New Hampshire during the Civil War to travel into the southern states to deliver funds to northern sympathizers who were living in the south at the time. But Patterson was captured and imprisoned, but eventually escaped and returned to the north. Uh, Patterson had further extramarital affairs and finally left Mary Baker Eddy in the summer of 1866, but she didn't divorce him until November 4, 1873.
0: Wow. You know, it's striking to me, he leaves her in the summer of 1866. This coincides with a very significant event in Mary Baker Eddy's history as the discoverer and founder of Christian Science. Earlier in that year, she had a healing experience that really ushered her into this new understanding of the Bible and its healing impact. It really sort of began her journey as the discoverer and founder of Christian science. Mike, I know you have some letters between Daniel Patterson and Mary Baker Eddy in early days leading up to uh, their marriage. Um,
2: Here's one. Daniel Patterson writes to Mary Baker Eddy. It is proper that you should know me thoroughly so that when we are married and you leave me to visit your friends, you may not look for either a philosophic or a poetical letter from your husband, and after reading my unsavory production, cry from vexation and disappointment and say, oh, that I had had sense enough to have married a man of genius, an intellectual literary man, who could write me something readable. That I would be proud to show my friends, or at least not ashamed to. But my dear, you will never find me better in this respect than I have exhibited myself. I probably never wrote any better letters in my life than those I have to you.
1: Well, it's interesting. I've read a lot of courtship letters from this era. One of the things that you find is these intense letters with the man explaining how unworthy he is, (laughs) uh, how much he loves her. When I would have my students read them in class, I would sometimes, in order to get them to understand how different the emotional expectations of love or the way you express love were, I would ask the guys to read some of these male letters aloud, and they would get so embarrassed. They would shift (laughs) in their seat, and they would (laughs) mutter, or they'd be sarcastic, and I would say, no, read them as if you... And they say, my life, I cannot breathe without you. I weep. It is a sort of death when you are not here. These extreme expressions of emotion. Mm. And the women just saying, you know, I need more from you. I've come to think of them as sort of the 19th century version of medieval bargaining over the marriage settlement, only this time not over what the material resources the couple will bring to the marriage, but the spiritual and emotional resources. And it's very common. Uh, I don't know if Mary was doing this, but it's very common for women to be absolutely clear. This was the one time in their life that they had power Mm -hmm. in the relationship, real power. And they wanted to get as much out of that as they can. And very often they would threaten to break marriage off. They would say, you know, your commitment isn't enough, or I don't think this will work. And then very typically the guy starts writing back, trying to assure her that he's got enough in his emotional bank account, that it's worth her while. Uh, So I don't know how that went between them, but it's not at all atypical for the woman to start making hard conditions and trying to cut off relationships and then getting enough assurances that he would treat her well, that she will relent.
0: Well, as it turns out, in this case, Daniel Patterson really doesn't have strong emotional reserves that are backed by moral constancy. The marriage is soon in real trouble. What would have been the surround for Mary Baker Eddy around societal attitudes towards marriage in this time given the crisis that she is facing?
1: Well, one of the hallmarks of the middle class ideals of marriage and sexuality in those days was that theoretically there was a single standard Mm -hmm. of sexuality. In the 19th century middle class ideal of marriage and of gender, men and women were both responsible for sexual restraint. There's a lot of confusion about Victorian ideas about sexuality. On the one hand, some people argued that women were devoid of sexual passion, but I find that difficult to believe or you would not have had so many physicians and moralists warning about how easy it was for even the most proper white Protestant a native-born girl to slide into depravity by reading novels, by drinking hot tea or coffee, which could lead to excessive excitement and <laughs> lead her into vices such as self-abuse. This was just like a major concern. But people believed that men should also have the same control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many men's diaries show that they really struggled to have that self-control. So overall in this period, it led to many, many different responses. There were some sex radicals of the time that took it a lot further. And they said, well, because a real purity is restraining from sex, any marriage where the man or the woman have committed adultery, and especially men going to prostitutes or anything like this, this was more immoral than free love. By free love, they did not mean promiscuity. They meant a love that was entered into and was a spiritual union either out of marriage. So there were huge debates going on in this period, and I have no idea how Mary processed them herself, but she would have been dealing with them and processing them and trying to find out what is the moral way to respond to the immoral way of my husband and to protect myself from his excesses and abuses.
2: I guess the last infidelity that she had to deal with was in 1866. She had that healing experience, and then in that summer, Patterson deserted her for the final time. But before that, he had had an extramarital affair with a wife of a local man there, and she actually persuaded the man to take his wife back and to forgive his wife for engaging in this affair with Patterson. That's according to Mary Baker Eddy's own account. Once Patterson had deserted her, finally, during the period then before the divorce in 1873, she was having her own healing practice. She was beginning to teach and write about Christian science. So, and overall, her invalidism had been put behind her at that point. She was very
0: active. She divorces Patterson in 1873. Did she have suitors after her divorce
2: Yes. She had, over time, a number of students who had come to her to study Christian science. So one of these students was a man named Daniel Spofford. And he apparently found Mary Baker Eddy not only spiritually interesting, but very attractive as well in other ways. And he proposed marriage to her. She turned him down and then immediately accepted the proposal of another student named Asa Gilbert Eddy, whom she called Gilbert. So she married Asa Gilbert Eddy right after rejecting Spofford, which didn't sit well with him at all. Asa Gilbert Eddy was born circa 1832 and died June 3rd, 1882. He married Mary Baker Eddy on January 1st, 1877. She was 55, and Asa Gilbert Eddy was 45 at the time. Asa Gilbert Eddy took on many of the domestic tasks in the household. He also served as a kind of secretary to his wife. He would take dictation from her and participate with her in editing these manuscripts. Mary Baker Eddy was this public woman establishing Christian science. And in addition to that, he himself practiced Christian science healing and taught classes in Christian science, so he was teaching classes in it as well. He organized the first Christian science Sunday school, and he would defend his wife against public attacks or injustices. For instance, there was a former student of hers named Edward Ahrens who plagiarized her main work, Science and Health, with Key to the Scriptures, and published these plagiarisms as his own. Um, In the next edition of Science and Health, Asa Gilbert Eddy contributed a preface and denounced Aaron's and his plagiarisms and called him an ignorant hypocrite. So that's basically what Asa Gilbert Eddy was doing during this marriage. Of course, he died in 1882, she was very grief-stricken when he died, and uh, she spent that summer, the summer of 1882 or most of it, in Vermont grieving him. She writes to Colonel Eldridge Smith on June 27, 1882. She says, words are vain. I cannot write my grief, and you cannot have the least conception of it. I feel almost as if I never should be comforted while I stay away from my loved, precious one that has gone before me. Oh, my tears blind me. I cannot think of him as gone. When I see you, I will tell you all. He was strong, noble, had the sweetest disposition and the most benevolent, charitable nature I have ever recognized in any person. Mm.
0: Well, that's lovely, Mike to hear those thoughts of Mary Baker Eddy about her third husband, Asa Eddy. You know, it sounds almost from what you were saying, Stephanie, about the history of marriage that maybe Asa Eddy was both yoke mate and soul mate for Mary Baker Eddy. And Stephanie, this marriage between Asa Gilbert and Mary takes place during this period when, as you were saying, Mike, she is emerging as a public figure. She's a public woman in American society at this point, um, and also one who has experienced divorce. So, Stephanie, what what did that mean in the 19th century to be a public woman, and how would society perceive someone in that position who had experienced divorce?
1: Being divorced was not a good thing to be in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, divorces were so hard to get that it was possible for people to think that the woman had really been a victim. So that didn't necessarily prevent her from playing a leadership role. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of room because of the interest in spirituality, in religion, in politics, in the women's rights movement, for women to step up and talk about these issues. But they had to do so in very constrained ways if they weren't going to get a lot of public rebuke if they weren't going to be humiliated and to be ridiculed and to be actually slandered. So this was something that you had to walk a very fine line in
0: doing. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's been great to spend this time with you. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you so much, Mike, for sharing your insights.
2: Well, thanks for having me. Good to be here and share some ideas. Great. Well, thank you both. I mean, It was interesting to me too, thanks.
0: And thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode as we explore the topic of marriage for Mary Baker Eddy, while also exploring the social history of marriage in the United States in her time period. This quote from Mary Baker Eddy's chapter on marriage in Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures strikes me as apropos in thinking about what we just experienced in the episode, but also about our relationship with you, our listeners. It reads, "Quote: Happiness is spiritual, born of truth and love. It is unselfish; therefore, it cannot exist alone, but requires all mankind to share it." I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you for listening. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2023.